Amazing. Morning all. It is an absolute joy to be here with you. This is not my first time in Cape Town. I've been to Cape Town a number of times before. Um, Back in the late 90s, I lived in PE um, for a year, worked as a youth pastor and would every so often do the garden route down to Cape Town to hang out. So this isn't my first time here. Um, And I absolutely love South Africa, and I absolutely love Cape Town. This is, however, my first time hanging out in Manenberg. Um, So I've been hanging out with Pete and Sarah, who are dear friends, hanging out with the Crew 62 crowd and the Basilla crowd. Um, And honestly, for me, when I look back on 2023, there'll be some real highlights. Um, And this opportunity to come and learn from what the guys are doing in Manenberg, this will stay with me for a very, very long time. Um, So that's been an absolute joy. And Pete basically said when we managed to organize the trip, he was like, I'd love to introduce you to a friend of mine called Taryn who leads this incredible church called Signal Church. We've got to connect you guys. Um, And I was like, oh, I think I recognize the name Signal Church. I've, I've heard of that before. So I went through my emails and then found an email from... Other dear friends, Julian and Katia Adams, that I know a number of you know, and this was a number of years ago, they're like, you've got to connect with my friends um, who lead this incredible church in Cape Town. So I see this as a work of the Spirit, that that God has like pulled the the strings together. So I see this as, as a privilege to be here, and I come with a sense of expectation that the Lord wants to do something in just developing relationships. The kingdom of God flows through relationships, amen, and this is hopefully the beginning of a fun relationship. Relationship. And I love, the, I love the name for, for this conference, um, this weekend, City on a Hill. Um, and obviously a number of passages come to mind when you think of a city on a hill. But what came to mind for me was a sense of ascending the hill of the Lord so that we can encounter the presence of God together. And I think we've experienced some of that this morning already. Um, but when Taryn basically said, we want to ascend the hill of the, the Lord, not just to encounter his presence but just to see Cape Town and to see the world as he sees the world and you get fresh perspective when you um, are higher up and I I sense that's what the Lord wants to do give us a a fresh perspective of what the Lord's doing not just in Cape Town not in South Africa but in the world right now so I'm going to share some reflections on that I'm entitling this session embodying the seven convictions for this cultural moment I'm like this is a fairly frightening moment culturally speaking Um, how do we inhabit a moment of uncertainty culturally and I think the answer is with conviction and the church at this point needs to rise up with conviction um, so I want to I want to name some convictions that I think are pretty important right now but before I name the convictions let me tell you a story a friend of mine, um, when he was really young, sort of 12 years old, got into train spotting. Any, any train spotters in the house? Um, it's a safe place. You can admit it if you really want to. Okay, no one in the house. Um, safe then. So he got into to train spotting at the age of 12. He was living in Nottingham, which is in the Midlands in the UK. Um, and he was walking along the street with his friend. And this guy whizzes past on a motorbike, screaming. Kudu's in the Vic! Kudu's in the Vic! Kudu's in the Vic! And he looked at his friend, was like, what the heck is going on right now? What's Kudu? What's going on? And they're like, well, we know the Vic is the Victoria train station. 
We just have no idea what he means by kudus in the Vic. They were so intrigued, so curious. They were like, we need to chase after him. So they start sprinting, these two 12-year-old boys sprinting after this motorbike. You know, they're dashing through roads, through the town centre. They see this guy on the motorbike pull up at Victoria train station. He parks up, he jumps off the motorbike, he runs into the station. These two 12-year-olds sprinting behind. They get into the, the train station and they find this guy and they're like, tap him on the shoulder. You, you said kudos in the Vic. You said kudos in the Vic. What? What does that even mean? And the guy said, well, you see, Kudu is the name of a train and the Kudu has never been in the Vic before. But now Kudu is in the Vic. And these two 12-year-olds are like, wow. And the guy gets to his bag and he pulls out this book with all these trains named in it and he finds Kudu and he underlines it and says, Kudu is in the Vic. These two boys are mesmerized. They're like, where do we get the book? Like, where do we get the book? And he says, well, there's, there's a shop in town. If you go to that shop, you can buy this kind of train spotting book. They both go and buy the book. They come back to the train station. They underline Kudu because Kudu's in the Vic. And that was the beginning of their journey, right? Two guys got into a habit giving lots of their time and energy towards train spotting because one guy whizzed past on a motorbike and with raw passion proclaimed kudos in the Vic. And there was so much curiosity that they chased after him, right? If the guy had gone past on the motorbike saying, kudu is in the Vic, everybody, kudu is in the Vic, no one would have chased after him, Right? We live in a moment of such cultural uncertainty. If the church rises up in a moment like this, with the equivalent of that passion, announcing not kudus in the Vic, but Jesus is Lord and his kingdom is at hand, I, I can tell you people will start watching and people will start chasing. So the question is, what are the convictions that we need to hold on to and proclaim with passion in a moment like this? And I, and I want to name some of them to you. Um, so number one, I'm going to see if I can control the slides. This could be a moment of breakthrough. Um, there we go. There we go. Um, number one, courage. This is a moment to rise up with courage and to be faithful to the scriptures to be faithful to the scriptures. There's a younger generation that haven't grown up with the practice of reading the scripture devotionally. And for them to be sustained in their walk with Jesus, living in um, a cultural moment like this, they need to be equipped with a spiritual practice of immersing themselves in the scriptures, to be formed by the word of God. We need to embrace that spiritual practice and we need to be raising up younger people with that spiritual practice in mind. I, I love the vision statement that you guys have as a, a church. Journeying with God or living in the story of God for the sake of Cape Town, something like that. So close, stepping into the story of God for the, the lead pastor should know, right? That would have been worrying if Taryn hadn't known that. Stepping into the story of God for the sake of, of Cape Town. We have a very um, similar vision statement in the language we regularly use at KXC, the church my wife and I lead in central London and King's Cross. We regularly say the story you live in is the story you live out. 
right? Because in a city like London and a city like Cape Town, you are being bombarded with stories. Every time you go to work, every time you walk home, every time you travel around the city, stories are hitting you left, right and centre. And you have to be super intentional about the story that is most forming your life. The story you live in is the story you live out. And this is a moment for the church to say, actually, we need to be deeply intentional about saying no to some of the stories of the world that are, are bombarding the senses. We need to say yes to the story of God. And the story of God then begins to shape the imagination so that we can see the world differently. Um, My father-in-law tragically passed away um, a number of years ago. I I got the phone call. No one ever wants to get a phone call like this. I was actually in a context like this. A guy called Mark Sayers was doing a a teaching session with our staff team at KXC. And and I turned my phone on at the end of the session. And you know when you have like 20 missed calls and you're like, I'm in big trouble. Like, I've done something really bad. I don't know what it is, but my wife's unhappy. So I'm like, okay, lots of missed calls. Pick up the phone. Not really sure what's happened. Um, And when I pick up the phone, she's sobbing uncontrollably. And she's trying to talk while sobbing. And I I can't understand a thing she's saying. So I I almost have to, to say, B, I actually, I can't hear what you're saying you know, can you, can you just slow down and just tell me, I know something horrific's happened. I just don't know what's happened. And my mind is thinking, has something happened to one of the kids? Like, what's going on? And then I hear her say these words, my dad is dead. Now, B's dad at the time was, you know, his early 60s. He was on holiday in Wales. He'd gone for a walk in the morning to have his quiet time. He'd walk to the top of this hill. He'd open up the scriptures at Psalm 63 and had a heart attack and was later found dead by a farmer with his Bible open at Psalm 63. Um, and from that point on, the phone calls, you know, to, to kids and to, to grandchildren, this is what's happened. So we're shaken. We get in a car. We drive six hours to, um, to Wales, to Dale, this place where it happened. And over the next weekend, we process trauma, which starts with complete shock. Um, and then, then you're in this kind of place that isn't home, trying to process what's happened. And, and each of us as children, children-in-law, were processing it differently. Um, but I noticed my brother-in-law, Paddy, was doing something strange. That my father-in-law, Nick, wore these prescription glasses. Um, and Paddy, who didn't need glasses, basically found Nick's glasses and, and put them on and started walking around the house. And for the next two days, was wearing his dad's glasses. Now, if you've ever worn somebody else's glasses, like, you know, if you were to put these on, you'd be like, what is wrong with you, Pete? Like, how do you even see anything with those glasses, right? When you put on somebody else's glasses, you, you can't really see clearly. So I knew Paddy was like, he's bumping into things left, right and centre. So I basically said, look, Paddy, can you just explain to me why you're wearing Nick's glasses? And this is what he said. He said, I just want to see the world as my dad saw the world. I just want to see the world as, as my dad saw the world, right? And I remember him saying it and thinking, that's such a beautiful image. And that is the opportunity we have when we open up the scriptures, right? Whenever we open up the scriptures, we begin to see the world as our father sees the world. 
You know, the story opens, Genesis 1. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be, let there be light. Let there be light. So in the very beginning, you have this interaction with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And there's an explosion of light and an explosion of life. Every time you open up the scriptures, each morning, each evening, whenever you do it, there is a guarantee whether you feel something or feel nothing. When the word of God interacts with the spirit of God, there'll be an explosion of light and an explosion of life. Do you want to see clearly? Do you want to see Cape Town as God sees Cape Town? Do you want to see your community as God sees your community? Well, here it is. Every time you read the scriptures, you're putting on a lens and beginning to see the world as God sees the world. Um, So we're invited to live in this story, to be shaped by this story, so that this story begins to shape our imagination. Um, This would be my summary of the the biblical narrative, that it's a story that moves from creation, um, which is Genesis 1 and 2, then to created order unraveling through sin. I call that decreation. That's Genesis 3, right the way through to Genesis 11, climaxing with the Tower of Babel story. And then Genesis 12 onwards, Genesis 12 is the hinge point, right? As God says to Abraham, you're going to be a father and a father to the nations. You're going to be the father to a nation, Israel. And Israel is going to be a vehicle of of healing and, and restoration and redemption. They're going to be a light to the nations, right? And then you read the story of of the Old Testament of of Israel sort of walking away from God, walking away from the story they were invited to participate in. So what happens in the New Testament is God comes in human flesh, God incarnate, right? To fulfill the story of Israel and through his life, death and resurrection, he pushes the story towards its fulfillment. And the fulfillment of the story we call recreation, The restoration of of how everything was meant to be. Now, Thomas Merton, the Catholic writer, he famously said, our lives are shaped by the end we live for, right? Our lives are shaped by the end we live for. It's a really good question. What is the end you're living for? Like, really healthy bank account, right? More comfort? What, What does success look like? Our lives are shaped by the end we live for. And one of the tragedies is that people don't really understand the end of the Christian story, the biblical story. Like if you ask people outside of the church, like what do Christians believe about the end of the story? They'll say something like this. Or they believe that when you die, you you leave your body behind and your soul ascends to this disembodied bliss where you ride around on clouds and angels are playing harps and everyone's drinking Red Bull um, and singing random worship songs like Here I Am to Worship. And that, that sounds horrific to me, right? But that's what a lot of people believe. Um, Christians believe about the end of our story. One of the greater tragedies is people in the church believe that that's the end of our story. That, that, that isn't New Testament theology, right? That is Greek philosophy. 
It's the thinking of a guy called Plato and other Greek philosophers. The end of our story isn't us ascending to some sort of disembodied bliss. It's God coming down and make his dwelling, making his dwelling place with humanity, right? And there's this incredible moment, Revelation 21, Revelation 22. You can read it in the book. Um, as this happens, the Apostle John has a vision of this happening, right? As God comes down and makes his dwelling place with humanity, God sits down on his throne. Sitting down is indicative of your work coming to completion and God says behold I'm making all things behold I'm making all things new now in the Greek of the New Testament you've got two words for new you've got neos which means brand new you've got kainos which is something old that's made new something that's restored to its former glory and in this vision as God sits down he says behold I'm making all things kainos I'm restoring everything to how it was in the beginning in Eden when there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering. Humanity fully alive in relationship with God, in relationship with one another, in relationship with created order. And as the Apostle John sees this, he's like, oh my gosh, as I see like the renewal of all things, suddenly there's no death and there's no grief and there's no crying and there's no pain. The former things, in other words, decreation, that order is passing away and the new creation has arrived in all its glory. Like This is a vision of the end of our story. God's on a mission to make all things new. All things, not some things. All things new. If you understand the story, right? The story you live in is the story you live out. Your life will be shaped by this vision of the renewal of all things. Now, understanding the story is is important because I want to try and articulate what I see happening in the the culture that surrounds us right now, the, the progressive secular culture that's all around us. And this is essentially what happened then during the um, Enlightenment. Um, a number of Enlightenment thinkers came along and basically said, Do you know what? We, we love the shape of the Judeo Christian story. We, we love that there is an account for the brokenness that surrounds us. And we love that there's, there's a vision of a movement towards progress, this utopian vision. We love that there's a linear view of time progress towards perfection the thing we detest about the story is we we don't want God to be the center of the story so we're going to get rid of God from being the center of the story and we want to put the rational autonomous self at the center of the story think of the word autonomy it's a compound word two words shoved together to form a new word auto self nomos law a law unto yourself You are God and you create your own kingdom. But I want you to notice how they basically took so much of the biblical language and imagery, got rid of God and tried to create a kingdom without the king. So so think of the language of the dark ages and a movement towards light, the enlightenment. That should ring bells because that is gospel language. Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And the Jewish community beginning to articulate in the arrival of Jesus the the fulfillment of promises that those walking in darkness have seen a great, right? So the Enlightenment thinks is like, okay, we want to get rid of God, but we want light, right? Think, Think of the language of Renaissance. It means rebirth. It's basically 
lifted out of John 3, a conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus. And Jesus saying, if, if you really want to be part of this new story, you need to be born again. There needs to be a rebirth of the spirit of God within you. And the Enlightenment thinks is like, ooh, we love rebirth language, but we don't want rebirth through the spirit of God. We want a renaissance through scientific advance and pushing forward technology because we are the center of the story and we want to be the architects of our future. Like we want to be the architects of our salvation, right? So essentially you have a story that a lot of the time as you hear secular thinking and progressive arguments, there's moments where you're like, oh, this looks Christian and this sounds Christian, right? Here's the litmus test. If Christ isn't the center of the story, if the cross isn't the center of the story, it fundamentally isn't Christianity. It isn't the kingdom story. So this would be my analysis of this cultural moment, that secular narratives are masquerading as kingdom narratives, right? And the church are embracing secular narratives and being formed by secular narratives that look Christian, sound Christian, but fundamentally aren't Christian. Right Now, smuggled into those stories are the idols of our age. That's point two. And point three, the idols are emptying the church of power. Right? Three steps. Secular narratives masquerading as kingdom narratives. Point one. Look Christian, sound Christian, but they never mention Jesus. They never mention the cross. They're fundamentally not Christian. Number two, hidden into those narratives, smuggled into the narratives are the idols of our age. And as we embrace the stories, we embrace the idols and the idols are emptying the church of power. C.S. Lewis put it like this, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. Like you bow the knee to money, success, reputation, whatever, whatever it might be, it will break your heart. And, and you're seeing right now a decline in the church in, in many parts of, of the Western world, in many parts where secularism is, is taking a grip on, on the culture. You're seeing the church often in massive decline. And this is a moment for us to wake up and recognize, hang on, that isn't the kingdom story. We're not going to allow that in the church. We have a better story, the story of God on a mission to make all things new. Um, Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, um, although I love that Tom Holland as well. Tom Holland, um, historian, who's written this massive book called Dominion, subtitled the, the, the Making of the Western Mind. It's a book of him trying to articulate how secularism works. This new religion, and it's highly religious, um, called secularism. And his summary of secularism is that secularism is godless Christianity. This is one of the, the leading minds basically trying to articulate what's happening in the surrounding culture. He says secularism is godless Christianity. They're trying to get to the end goal of the Christian vision, but pushing Jesus out of the center, right? And we in the church need to wake up and say, look, if you want to get to the end of the story, like all things new, Jesus has to be the center of the story. So this is the story that we live in, the story that we live out. It's centered around the person of? Tough crowd, but Jesus, yes, right in the middle there. I tried to put it in big, bold font so you could see it. Um, and the story is fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We need to live in and live out the story of God. There's no point taking off the spectacles 
and thinking you can participate in the story when you're not shaped by the imagination of the kingdom of God. Immerse yourself in the scriptures. You'll see things clearly. You'll be able to identify the counterfeit stories and say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not my story. I live in the kingdom story. And if we're to follow the way of Jesus, the incarnation, cross and resurrection, I think there's three things we need to go after. We need to be an incarnational people. So in a moment, I'm going to talk about compassion. We need to be cross-centered. We need to courageously proclaim the cross. If you extract the cross from the story, what you're left with is a vision of sanctified humanism and it has no power to change the world. And we need to be a people of resurrection. Resurrection life is coursing through our veins right now. As the Spirit of God moves amongst us, there's resurrection life coursing through our veins. We should be the most creative people on the planet because the the Spirit of the Creator God is at work within us. So we're going to unpack some of this. Um, Here's conviction number two. We need to be a people of compassion. We need to be a people of compassion. Now, what does compassion mean? Compassion is another compound word. I love compound words. Um, Com meaning with. Passion, from the Latin verb passio, meaning to suffer, right? Like, compassion means to suffer with. To suffer with. Like, honestly, one of the reasons we're here, um, I'm, I'm here with a, a friend of mine, Zach, who's our missions pastor at KXC. I'm here with my 14-year-old son, Benj. Um, they're exploring Cape Town right now, and they've heard this teaching too many times, so they didn't want to sit through it again. Um, but the reason we're here is to learn from what the guys are doing in Manenberg of an incarnational vision of we want to live amongst the people of Manenberg. Not just a little trip in and a little trip out. We want to learn to do life and see the kingdom unfold from the grassroots of living amongst the people of Manenberg. And, and being around the guys, it, you know, it's beautiful to see. Incredibly challenging, but beautiful to see. We're trying to do something very, very similar in a very different context in the centre of London in King's Cross. And we regularly say to our church that if we want to live in the kingdom story, it requires us to suffer, right? To suffer with the people of King's Cross, Right, the first move God makes in mission, remember the previous slide, incarnation, death, resurrection. The first move God makes in mission is towards the pain. The first move God makes is towards the hurting and towards those on the outcasts. If there's a bias in the heart of God, and I really believe there is, it's towards the poor. And there are versions of Christianity and versions of being and doing church that enable people to live at a safe distance from the pain where they don't have to suffer with, might have sympathy for, might give towards, but don't suffer with. If there's a version of the kingdom story that you've inherited or been drawn into that doesn't require you to suffer with, can I say, it isn't the kingdom story. It's not following the way of Jesus. Right? So there's something about saying, Lord, this is costly, but this is the way of the cross, and we want to follow the way of Jesus. Like, teach us to wed ourselves to the well being of the people that surround us so that when they suffer, we suffer, and when they're rejoicing, we're rejoicing. Right? Because when you wed yourself to the well being of the poor in your communities and you begin to suffer with them, boy, that's going to motivate you to act, right? Because you're like, 
I, I, I believe there's a pathway through. Jesus has shown that, that he's with us in the midst of the suffering, but there's a journey through the dark valley towards green pastures, and I want to be on this journey with you. I think right now, with all of the trauma that surrounds us in the culture, all of the poverty, everything that's going on, the church needs to rise up as a people of compassion. A people of compassion. Meaning to suffer with. Thirdly then, we want to be contextual. We want to creatively engage with the surrounding culture. Um, And and by this I mean a couple of things. Firstly, I, I mean we need to proclaim afresh the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm an Anglican priest. I don't look like one. I don't sound like one. But when I got ordained in 2008 at St. Paul's Cathedral, I had to make certain promises. And one of the promises I made was to proclaim afresh the gospel in each generation. Right? That I was going to find ways of communicating this unchanging gospel proclamation to an ever-changing context in the context of central London right? Um, And we need to find fresh ways to proclaim afresh the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the really exciting things that's happening in London, I'm guessing it's it's happening here in Cape Town, because the grip of secularism is so strong and it's leading people to such darkness, there's a younger generation that are spiritually incredibly hungry and they're beginning to tear up the secular scripts. Like we regularly have young people walking into our church basically saying, the script doesn't work. Like I've embraced secularism. I've gone full on after secularism. It's led me to nowhere good. I'm searching for a better story. This is a couple of weeks ago. We had this Buddhist guy rock up at KXC. Um, he didn't even come to the service. Uh, the service. He walked into the cafe at the end of the service. He found um, our associate pastor, John Carter, and he taps him on the shoulder and he says, my background is Buddhism, but the most compelling figure in human history I've ever encountered is the person of Jesus. Could you lead me towards him? I mean, that's called easy pickings, right? That's someone coming saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an open goal for John Carter. It's like, all you have to do is kick the ball in the net. It's so easy right now. It's like, well, can I just say this prayer with you? And, and he leads this guy to Jesus. Like, there's a mindset often that, oh, it's really hard leading people to Jesus. And there's been moments where it has been really hard. But this is honestly a new season. Like, you don't have to, like you know, really help people see that this secular vision isn't really working. They fully know it. They're experiencing it in their being. They're tearing up the scripts that they've inherited and they're looking for a better story. And we need to rise up with confidence to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to proclaim the gospel, but we also need to be carriers of kingdom DNA in the different spheres of culture that surround us. Um, so we, we come to church on Sunday, we're in small groups, we're marinating in the kingdom story, being shaped by the kingdom story, right? But we're sent out. And, you know, whether it be your career and where you work or where you spend most of your time, the spaces, the communities that you inhabit, like we need a, a vision of being carriers of the presence of God and carriers of kingdom culture so that wherever we go, we begin to shape that culture with kingdom culture. Now, I can imagine Pete Portal, who's a dear friend of mine, squirming right now as he sees a slide like this, because this vision has often been articulated with the language of seven mountains of culture. 
right? That what people need to do and what the church needs to do is we need to ascend the mountains. We need to ascend the mountains, these, these spheres of influence. And if we can get Christians at the very top, like then we'll have enough power to pull levers and transform culture. When the church has held that kind of worldly power, it's never gone very well. Like, it it normally ends very badly. So please don't hear me saying, like, we need a Christian president, a Christian prime minister. If we just had Christians at the top of every mountain, then the trickle-down effect and the kingdom would come. I'm not saying that, because that's very hard to articulate that vision from the New Testament. As an essentially uh, kind of minority sect, experiencing persecution and oppression, but with such a strong culture begin to shape the world, right? Very, very different. But I do believe in a vision that if God's making all things new, then his vision is to make the fashion industry new, right? The renewal of the music industry and the renewal of education, where teachers don't have a vision of just getting their kids the right grades, but are trying to form men and women of character and substance. I do believe that God wants to bring the renewal to how we do politics and how we go about business, right? Like he wants to renew and redeem all things. So we need a vision for the renewal of all sectors of society. So I do want to articulate that vision. And I guess I want to add to it. um, And this is because this is found in Pete Portal's new book. Um, He basically says, I don't think... The next slide is, is actually up on the screen. But anyway, he, he basically says, look, people talk about the seven mountains, but we should also be talking about the seven valleys because we know that the prophecy of, of Isaiah will be that the mountains will be brought down and the valleys will be raised up. So maybe the people of God should be going not just to the seven mountains. We should be engaging in culture. Amen to that. But we should be going to the valleys. Um, And I think he steals the work, borrows maybe, but I think it's probably steals the work of Bob Ekblad, who basically names, well, maybe here's seven valleys we could go after. Old people's homes, slums, refugee camps, psychiatric wards, those without homes, and drug dens. Like, what if the people of God had this vision that we want to engage with these spheres of culture, but we want to go to the seven valleys? Because if there's a bias in the heart of God, it's a bias towards the poor. Um, Here's the the fourth conviction, um, and I'm speaking in a vineyard church, so there should probably be a a yes and amen to this. We're charismatic people. Can I hear an amen? Amen. I was expecting it to be louder, but there we go. Um, What do we mean by charismatic? Charismatic. this is, this is what we mean, or when I'm at KXC, this is how I try and articulate what it means to be charismatic. I don't just mean signs and wonders. Like, it's possible for you to have the full reins of your life and just ask God to bless you with the occasional miracle that reminds you that there's power present, but you're holding the reins. Like, truly charismatic people relinquish control and say, Spirit, you take the reins. That's pretty rare in the church, by the way. I know we all believe in it, but functionally, it's pretty rare amongst the people of God. For churches to say, do you know what? You take the reins. And we will experience sometimes the the fear of not being in control, but our faith levels in your ability to lead us, God, that's enough for us. So the language we use at KXC is if you're looking for a church with a 10-year plan or a five-year plan, you've come to the wrong church. Like We do have plans but we hold them incredibly lightly. So this is the kind of church where we don't have a map because we have a guide, 
right? So think of the Exodus narrative. God basically says to Moses and says to the people, I'm going to lead you from Egypt to the promised land. Here's the deal. There is no map, right? I will give you a cloud by day and a fire by night. These are manifestations of my presence. If you stay close to my presence, my presence will lead you to abundance, right? That requires a heads up spirituality. If, if you were given a map, I know what you're like because I know what I'm like. Head down, execute the plan. We go here, here, here. That isn't an Old Testament spirituality and it's not a New Testament spirituality, but you find it everywhere in the church, right? Churches with big plans, human strategies, executing plans, right? Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. That's not a heads down spirituality. That's a, what are you doing today, father? I want to jump on board and bless it. Paul invites us to walk by the spirit. That's not a head down spirituality. That's head up. What are we doing today? So a charismatic church isn't just a church with the odd sign and wonder to remind the people that there's power. It's a church that holds every human plan unbelievably lightly and the lag time between God speaking and directing and the church responding in obedience, that's how charismatic you really are. And in my experience, it's quite rare to find fully charismatic churches these days because we've been importing models from the business world. We've become highly strategic with lots of structures and lots of plans, but struggle to hear the voice of God and here's here's the thing only the cloud only the fire only the presence will lead you to abundance right fullness of life it might look like foolishness in the eyes of the world but it's the power of God so we don't have a map we have a guide which means our strategies don't come from the boardroom they come from the prayer room right so like every elders gathering every gathering like this we saw it earlier it's like Okay, let's just hand over the mic and let God speak into the room. And the prophets rise up. They speak the heart of God. And it's like, hmm, that sounds like God. Let's go, right? And it's beautiful to see some of this being outworked here at Signal Church. Number five, um, we need a contemplative spirituality. Practices of counterformation. In an urban context like Cape Town, Cape Town will do an unbelievable job of forming you. If you just try and stay still, yeah, you won't actually stay still. Because the culture of Cape Town is like a, a flowing river. And if you jump in the river and, and, and you're not swimming, you're going to move in a certain direction, right? Um, and therefore, we need a vision of swimming against the current. And this requires deep intentionality. Like Sunday once a week with a, a fix of church, it isn't enough to combat the forces that are moving you in the surrounding culture. So we need to discover practices of counterformation. So in the context of KXC, this is some of our our learning. Um, There's a, a book, Joseph Myers, The Search to Belong. And he basically talks about for people to experience belonging, they need to experience belonging in in a number of different spheres. Um, You need the public sphere. Like when, when you're at a rugby match, a soccer match, and you're in the crowd and you're cheering for the same team. There's a deep sense of belonging in that moment, right? Like I've been to soccer matches where I'm a Man U fan. In fact, I, I watched, this is a side point, it's just come back to me, a flashback. Nine, any Man U fans in the house? Okay, the four of you are going to love this. So 1999, I was living in PE, 
So I went to a pub to watch the Champions League final where Man U um, won. It was like this epic moment. And I remember in this South African bar, like us scoring this winning goal um, and jumping into the arms of this huge Afrikaans guy I'd never met before. I, I kissed him on the cheek. And honestly, he loved it. He absolutely loved it, right? It, it was this moment of incredible belonging because there's moments where you experience belonging in larger environments where you share, the, you share the same cause, right? But you need more than that to experience this deep longing for belonging. And he basically says you need to experience that in a social space, which is more like 12 to 20, which would be in the church. That would be a home group. You're not in a crowd now. In a crowd, you can be anonymous, in someone's living room, you step out of anonymity into being known. And you need to experience belonging in that kind of place. And he says, but you need more than that. You need personal spaces, two to five. These are your deepest friends. They actually know how you're really doing. It's possible to be in a home group and still not be fully known, depending on how much you give of yourself. But with your two to five dearest friends, they should really know how you're doing. And he says, beyond that, normally there's, there's a person. Like a husband or a wife or a best friend or a mum or, or a dad, like your person that you go to when you most need help. We need each of these. And, and we, could, we could map this on to the ministry of Jesus. You've got Jesus with the 72, and then you've got Jesus with the 12. But it's hard not to argue that there's a deeper formation that happens with the three, Peter, James, and John. And then you see Jesus regularly retreating to be with the Father. Like, okay, I'm leaving you guys behind. I'm going up the mountain to encounter my Father in heaven. And you see this rhythm. And what we noticed at KXC is we went big on Sundays, these gathering moments. We had small groups. We call them hubs. We were really trying to equip people in the area of developing a devotional life. But in that personal space, we were doing nothing, right? And we were watching a whole generation. Our, our church is very young. So like the average age is probably 26 of church of a thousand that's that's kind of a lot of like young people and we were doing all this stuff working really hard and seeing them more and more shaped by the culture that surrounds them and it's like what are we doing it's like we're missing something and we're like hang on a minute we need some deeper more intentional spiritual formation right we we were busy trying to give people just a, a biblical worldview shape the mind but what spiritual practices do they actually grab hold of your body like this is Augustine's idea that we're primarily shaped not by our thinking or our beliefs, but by our desires. And what spiritual practices do is they grab you at the gut level and they shape your desires. And if you have the right spiritual practices, they move your desires towards the direction of the kingdom of God. And we all move in the direction of our desires. So when the compass is pointed towards Jesus, you move that way. So these spiritual practices of solitude and rest and fasting, they're bodily practices. Practices. You don't just sit down and think. Your whole body's involved. And we're like, okay, we need to equip a younger generation with some spiritual practices. So let me very quickly explain what that looks like in the context of KXC. And, and this isn't suggesting you should do something like this. Just trying to share some of our learning. Okay, so we call it pattern, restoring patterns of renewal. Um, we go through four stages, story, vision, pattern, contend. The story is basically articulating how did you become the person that you are now? 
So you do a timeline from birth to now. Anything above the line is positive experiences that formed you. Below the line is painful, traumatic experiences that formed you. And when you spend three hours going through your story with two or three other people, that's unbelievably powerful. Now, you would expect this to be normal amongst the people of God, right? Like doing community. We talk about we're family, like we're family. And then you realize you do an exercise like this and like hundreds of people in the church basically say, I've never sat down and for three hours just shared my story with people whose only task is to listen, ask questions and then pray for me. Just this was life-changing for me. And there were moments, I've, I've done this a few times with different groups I'm in, when, when all of you are just in tears, as like empathy creates this deep connection of, I can't believe you went through that. And then as you're listening to somebody else's story, you're noticing patterns of behavior. Oh, like you notice that happened again. It feels like a replay of what happened before. Do you mind if we just pray that God breaks this cycle? Because it seems to be regular in your life. Or like, you know, this bit happened, this kind of positive experience. Like that should build faith for this challenge that you're going through. Can we just pray now? So you're praying through people's stories. Incredibly powerful. So story, vision. Then you articulate, like, what is God calling me to? Where, where is God speaking? Where is God directing me? And then it comes to the patterns, the making and breaking of habits. We're going to pray that God would break certain habits that are leading us away from the kingdom and help us develop new patterns that align our desires with the trajectory of the kingdom. And then together as a group, we're like, we're going to practice these habits together. And we're going to fast weekly, let's say. And we're going to text one another. How's it going? Horrible. Me too. I hate it. Me too. But let's keep going. So, so we develop these patterns together, knowing that the patterns of our lives form the desires of our lives, which shape the direction of our lives. Right? And so often the church, we thought if we give them good teaching, good theology, that will set the, the compass. It's just not right. Like, or get Augustine. One of his central convictions was, yes, we're believing beings. Yes, we're thinking beings, but primarily we're desiring beings. And we need to point our desires towards the kingdom of God. Um, and then finally, we contend in prayer. Story, vision, pattern, contend. We pray for one another as we walk together. Uh, coming into land, so I'm going to rush through this last bit. Um, number six, conviction, communal. Category-defying relationships. Like, the kingdom community should be radically diverse, and we're on a journey at KXC of growing when it comes to like racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity, um, and generational diversity, right? And, and on some of them, we've traveled really far. When it comes to racial diversity, our community's like radically diverse now. Socioeconomically, we're at the beginning of that journey where we're trying to say to people that um, we are engaging with in the community with all these kind of ministries that we run, we want to find a way of being and doing church where they feel entirely welcome. And right now, for whatever reason, they come in and they're like, I don't know if I can fully belong here. And we're like, well, we need to change some things. Because if you're saying you're finding it hard to belong in this room, we're doing something fundamentally wrong, right? We want to be a church where the margins exist at the center and we've got a long way to go. And, and the same demographically, we're very young. We're trying to, to, to build that. Um, but to be family, this is one other reflection I have is that I think within the church we need to reclaim the language of spiritual mothers and fathers for so long we've spoken of leaders like most churches talk about you know the senior leader right 
Um, and I wonder if we need to rediscover what it means to be mothers and fathers. And I felt this conviction. I had a sabbatical a little while ago. Um, and on sabbatical, I basically, I, I had been 10 years in ministry at KXC. I was absolutely knackered. Um, and I had turned 40, so I was probably going through a midlife crisis as well. Um, and I was trying to figure out like who I am, what my life's about, how do I navigate this transition in ministry and in life? And I felt God say to me, you've been operating primarily as a leader. Um, and leaders tend to be driven by destination. And I'd spent probably 10 years in the life of KXC casting vision. Like, we're going here. Like, we're doing this. Like, come on, everyone. Just casting vision. And what good leaders do is, is they basically create dissatisfaction with here. Like, to help people move to there, you have to highlight how here sucks a little bit. Right, and, and if you can convince people that here sucks a little bit, they'll be like, yeah, there does sound appealing. You're, you're right. Oh, this is horrible. We, need to, we should go there now. And you're like, yep, that's a good idea. Let, I agree. Let's go. Right? So driven by destination. And I'm exaggerating to make the point. Um, but spiritual mothers and fathers operate differently. I, I know what my kids need when I get home from work. Right? They don't want me casting vision of what life could look like if we lived in a bigger house with a bigger garden, like with better toys. They want me to be present with delight. So I get back, they're entirely disinterested in my day. They want to dance around the kitchen, play basketball in the garden, and play FIFA on the PlayStation, right? And they want me to be emotionally, physically present with joy, right? And I realize, okay, I've been leading a church, but have I been spiritually parenting a church? Like, I know there's some leadership stuff in me. There's some pioneering I still want to do, but I want to transition because I actually want to be a spiritual father figure, right? And, and what, what my kids need, like what the church needs from me isn't just more vision, particularly post-COVID, where everyone's exhausted and there's so much trauma. Like, traumatized people don't need just more and more vision. They need someone to say, I'm here, this hurts, doesn't it? Can, can we just be together? I'm not leaving your side. We'll make it through this. Spiritual mums and dads do that. Leaders tend to find that boring and want to move on. And I think in the church right now, and this isn't just senior pastors, but spiritual mothers and fathers need to emerge, not just driven by destination, but present with delight because we need to function as family. Um, final conviction is contending. We saw some of this earlier. It was beautiful to witness when the church rises up and starts knocking on the door of heaven, saying, God, we need an outpouring of the Spirit. Our best preaching, our best programs, our best um, attempts to influence the surrounding culture without your power, it's just not working. And we're exhausting ourselves trying. So we're going to give more time, more energy to knocking on the door of heaven saying, would you pour out your Spirit? Like what the church needs right now isn't more great preachers, It needs an outpouring of power. It needs a revival in the church that leads to an awakening in the surrounding culture. And increasingly, as I travel, I'm finding pastors putting down tools, saying, I'm absolutely knackered, um, and I'm going to spend more time on my knees asking for the spirit to be poured out. I think we need to rediscover a contending spirituality, like people leading one another in prayer out of desperation, saying, God, please come, please come, please don't pass us by. Like, we don't want to just read stories of moves of the spirit from church history or from other parts of the globe. We want it here in Cape Town. We want it here at Signal Church. Pour out your power. And I'm seeing this now. 
I'm seeing churches that have been sleepy when it comes to prayer wake up and take intercession very seriously. So final slide. And this is partly because I'm greedy. As I've listened to other pastors that I tune into, I've heard voices that have confused me where certain voices have said, look, what the church needs right now is a contemplative spirituality, a slow down spirituality. Everything's operating at breakneck speed. We're in a wilderness moment. The purpose of the wilderness is spiritual formation. We need a contemplative spirituality. And I read those books and I listen to those podcasts and I'm like, yeah, oh, contemplative spirituality, absolutely. Spiritual, yeah, spiritual formation. And then I read other people saying, what we actually need is fire. Like we need revival spirituality, right? What, what we need is, is communities coming together to get on their knees, to call down fire from heaven. We need a revival spirituality because the church is dying and in places dead. We need fire, we need revival. And I read those books and I listen to those podcasts and I'm like, yes, that's the one. No, 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 that's it's revival. And then I read other people saying what we actually need is a missional spirituality. Like we need to go and proclaim the gospel and and live amongst those on the margins of society. We need to to see the culture like brought to an awakening. And I'm I'm like, yes, we need a a missional spirituality. And then when I take a, a, a step back, I'm like, do you know what? I think I want all of it. Like it's not just one or the other. I actually want all of that, right? And I, I don't think we should settle for one or the other. Like, I, I don't think there should be any spiritual formation without a revival spirituality, without a missional spirituality. Like, I think if you do the missional spirituality without the revival spirituality, you end up normally with burnt out, angry Christians, right? And, but we want to be formed into the likeness of Jesus. So we want to retreat to be formed. We want to receive fire. We want to take that fire into the surrounding culture and see the kingdom break out. Amen. So these are the seven convictions that I want to leave with you and want to pray that we as the church right now, whether it be in King's Cross or here in Cape Town, would start screaming with conviction, Kudu's in the Vic! Or the equivalent, the kingdom of God's at hand. Should we pray? Why don't we stand? Holy Spirit, would you come? pour out your presence in this place. Holy Spirit, would you come pour out your presence in this place. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Just as, as we're waiting in the presence of God, and I could be completely wrong on this, but what I sense the Lord wanting to do within this church is to bring about a season of tears that will lead to a season of joy. Those that sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. And I think the tears are going to come about through marinating in the presence of God in such a way that softens the heart where sights of wounding in your own life that as part of like 
trying to get by. Those places have been numbed. But as the spirit moves, there's going to be a softening of, of heart that leads to like living water flowing to bring healing. But then that, that living water will flow from you and lead to joy all about you. Jesus said, those who drink this water will become springs welling up to eternal life. It's not just that they will be satisfied. It's that they will become a spring. I think the Lord is wanting to to invite Signal Church to drink deeply because there is healing for you. And in the sights of your wounding, when the healing flows there, springs will emerge from that place. And the, the living waters will flow from Signal down the mountains, bringing life to dead places. It's the spirit of the living God, would you do it? Spirit of the living God, would you do it? Lord, as, as we ascend the head of the Lord and enjoy your presence and experience the depth of your affection for us, Lord, in that place, break our hearts for those around us, particularly the poor and the broken. May your affection for them do something deep within us. Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. We're just going to continue to wait. I know the coffee urge will be growing. Caffeine addicts will be like, shaking a little bit, but that's fine. Just want to lean in. There's, there's two groups that I think I'd love to, to pray for. The Lord will be doing lots of things across the room, but just two things I want to lean into. Those that just sense this morning an invitation into some healing, where you're aware that there's areas of wounding, and that, that might manifest itself through the awareness of pain, or for others it will feel like numbness. You don't feel pain, you feel nothing at all. You can't numb just one or two emotions, you numb them all. And there's people in the room that either there's numbness or there's pain, but you know the Spirit's saying, there's some healing for you this morning. So in a moment, we're going to pray for those. Second group, I think the Lord is birthing compassion amongst some people in the room, which is, it's, is you're beginning to feel what the Father feels towards those in the city that don't know him towards those in the city that are experiencing the dehumanizing effects of poverty. And, and it's just stirring in your being. You, you're, you're learning how to suffer with. And the Lord is stirring that. If you're in either of those groups, can I just invite you to do something really brave before we break, just to put your hand in the air? Because I believe the Spirit is here with power. And if your hand isn't in the air, your ministry team, by the way, so can you just find someone with their hand in the air and simply say, what's the Lord doing right now? Is it healing or is it birthing compassion? And then your job as you pray is simply to bless what God's already doing. The Spirit's already doing this. You don't need to orchestrate it through your prayers. The Spirit's already doing the work. You just bless what he's doing. So can we have a number of folk that find the hands in the air, just lay a hand on their shoulder, says in the scriptures that we fan into flame what God is doing through the laying on of hands. And as we lay our hands on and say, come Holy Spirit, we're asking the Lord 
amplify what he's doing, to increase what he's doing. Spirit of the living God, where there is an invitation this morning into healing, pour out living waters, healing waters. Holy Spirit, come. And Lord, where you're birthing compassion in this place, Lord, come and do it. Break our hearts with the things that break your heart. Just as you wept over Jerusalem, just as you wept at Lazarus's grave, like moved in the depth of your being, Lord, we want to be a people that sow in tears as well as a people that reap in joy. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. That's it. Holy Spirit, come. Cool, yeah, that.